Consider this. As of 2021, there were some 7.9 billion people living in the world. 7.9 billion. In that 7.9 billion, kind of breaking it down now and looking at ethnic groups... Back in 2013, the Washington Post reported on a study done by the Harvard Institute on which countries were the most ethnically diverse. And in doing so, they first came up with the fact that there's 190 countries in the world with some 650 ethnicities. Let's look at cultures for a brief moment. A blog called Cultures Around the World on the website Is Accurate, a translation service, reports, quote, some scholars believe that there are more than 3,800 cultures in the world, but of course, this number is far higher in reality. Cultures aren't restricted to territories of the countries. One region alone could have dozens of communities with their unique system of beliefs. Let's talk languages. This from a language website called Busu. Roughly 6,500 languages are spoken in the world today. Then the website goes on to reveal the 12 most spoken languages in the world. Of course, English is number one. Number two, Mandarin, then Hindi, and Spanish, just to give you the top four. Interestingly enough, the name of the website, I thought this was great, Busu, comes from a language that they say is only spoken by roughly eight people. More people speak Klingon in the world than they speak Busu. Regarding religions, NationalDayCalendar.com reports that the world is filled with over 4,000 recognized religions. These religions consist of churches, congregations, faith groups, tribes, cultures, and movements. And even though there are so many, three-quarters of the world's population practice one of the five major religions. The top five being Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism. Let's talk political systems. Thebestschools.org reports that there are some 10 common forms of government, including democracy, communism, dictatorship, oligarchy. But when economic policies, political structures, and philosophical ideologies start to overlap, then things can get more complex in the area of governments. Yet in light of all the people in the world, the different ethnicities, the many different cultures, religions, and political systems, there are still only two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds. And we will learn who these two kinds of people are from our text this morning. So please go ahead. I invite you to Turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where last week we jumped into chapter 5, where Paul continues with his theme of eschatology, that is end times events. But he makes a a shift in chapter 5 from dealing with what we have come to call the rapture, which we see at the end of chapter 4 there, now to this period of God's judgment and God's wrath, which is called the day of the Lord. And here's what we learned so far, going back to last week, about the day of the Lord in verses 1 to 3. We learned that in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord um, talks about God's judgment and wrath but that it could take place in a near historical context, like when God would discipline wayward Israel, or it could be understood also in a far future sense. It could be one specific day, or it could be a period of time. Secondly, the future day of the Lord, which is what our text concerns here in chapter 5, is not just one day, but it is indeed a period of time where God will bring about his judgment and his wrath upon the earth for the people's unrepentant sins 
against he and his son. The future judgment and wrath will be ushered in once the rapture has taken place. All of this, all of this is what we call imminent, meaning it will happen, but it could happen any time, even right now, or right now, or now. Yeah, exactly. You get the idea. It is imminent. We are waiting for this to happen. Next, the day of the Lord, we learned, will come just like a thief in the night. Meaning it will come unexpectedly. It will come without warning. And while people have lulled themselves into a lazy, false sense of security, the destructive day of the Lord will be sudden and painful, like a woman who has labor pains. And lastly, there will be no escape for anyone once the day of the Lord has begun. Now this morning we continue learning about the day of the Lord and the fact that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to understand why indeed they had not missed the rapture and they were not currently in the day of the Lord and and he does so by contrasting those who will not escape the judgment and wrath of the day of the Lord versus those who would be rescued from it. Go ahead and please stand with me as we read God's word. First Thessalonians chapter five. We'll we'll go ahead and read the 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 whole um, verses one to eleven. One to eleven. The apostle Paul writes this. Now as to the times and to the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober for those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I had come up with uh, four points that I thought I would take us uh, from four to 11. But um, about halfway through my my week or my study time, I realized, no, we're just going to do two points. So we'll do two points this week and we'll wrap up with our following two points next week and a little summary as well of these end time events that we have been looking at. So the first of our two points this, uh, this morning that we see from our text, I call the division of people. Two kinds, two kinds. Back in verse four, but you brethren are not in darkness, but that the day would overtake you like a thief. We love that word, but in the Bible, don't we? It's really, it's really a blessed word here because we're getting this contrast. And, and, and in this case, it's, it's a positive one for us uh, who are not in the darkness. Uh, but you brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, The Bible has long contrasted believers with unbelievers in this context of light versus dark, day versus night. Keep your marker there in 1 Thessalonians because obviously we're coming back. But let's go over to Psalm 107 for a few minutes. Psalm 107. And we'll begin in verse 10. Psalm 107. It's a psalm of deliverance. The first nine verses focus on giving thanks to the Lord for his goodness in delivering his redeemed from the hand of an enemy, from wandering in the wilderness, from distresses 
and from sin. And then we get to verses 10 to 16 where we see unbelievers come out of darkness with the implication there that they are now believers coming into light. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 10, the psalmist says this, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. And listen to this part. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them and brought them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Oh, what a tremendous passage. We also could go to some others. I'll just read these to you. But again, notice there that that they were brought out of darkness. They were brought out of the shadow of death. They cried out to the Lord. He brought them out of darkness, out of the shadow of death. In, In that classic text of Isaiah 9, we see darkness contrasted with light as the light will be provided by who? The Messiah. The Messiah, right? As the prophet writes, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Zacharias prophesied about what his son John the Baptist will do to prepare the way for the Messiah when he said this, the sunrise from on high will visit us. He's referring to Jesus, the Messiah. I love that. The sunrise. We, we long and wait for the sunrise and it's and it's glorious and he says to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace as he quotes isaiah 9 there john testifies of the messiah jesus in the book of john in chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 when he says that in him was life And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then down in verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Speaking again of Jesus, the Messiah. Paul, the apostle, writes in Ephesians 5, 8, reminding believers, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And what becomes clear from these texts and others, including ours this morning, is that darkness, darkness and night represent our current sin-cursed world, with the ruler of this world being, of course, Satan. Darkness and night represent those who are in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. They are those who have had their minds blinded by the God of this world. They are those who oppose God, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who have not repented before God or been forgiven by Him. They are those who have rejected God, who have rejected God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So darkness and night also represent death physically, but also spiritually. Now juxtaposed with this, we have light and day. And light and day here in the scripture represents God's kingdom. It represents the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sunrise, the great light, the light of the world, the light of life, spiritual life. Light and day represent goodness and righteousness and truth. That come from God. Now back in our text friends. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians again. That there are how many? Two. Two kinds of people in the world. And of course this translates for us today as well. There always has been two kinds of people in the world. There always will be. Until the Lord returns. 
two kinds of people in the world. Those of the darkness and night and those of the light and day. In other words, unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers and believers. Believers like themselves, meaning the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul referring to them as brethren, meaning his spiritual brethren. And that's it, friends. That's it. There are no other categories. There is no category 3 or 2A or B or whatever. There's, there's no other categories. There's no maybe believers or halfway believers or possible believers. And this is the way it's been for every single person throughout the history of the world. And again, always will be until the end of the history of the world. Now, first in our text, Paul describes believers by saying what they are not. They are not in darkness. They are not of night nor of darkness. And then he says what believers are. They are sons of light and sons of day. We could interject daughters, sons and daughters. He's referring to all people, not just fellas versus ladies, of course. And the implication is that that those who are in and of darkness and who are of night are, again, unbelievers. Now, let's ask a, a, a very significant question here. I know this might be kind of like preaching to the choir, but, but how does someone go from being in darkness and of the night to being in the light and of the day? Well, remember what we learned back in Psalm 107, verses 13 to 14, when the psalmist wrote, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And again, the implication is that he brought them into light and he brought them into Day. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.9 that this transition that he's talking about there starts with God. With God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We recently read, if you're following along and going through the, the new Bible app for this year, then this last week we read how Paul was testifying before King Agrippa, telling him how Jesus sent him to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, meaning the Lord Jesus. And so we could ask the question, how is it then that Paul would do this? How would Paul open their eyes so that they could turn from darkness to light? By preaching the gospel to them, right? By giving them the good news that they needed to hear. The good news of Jesus Christ and and sharing with them the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is what he would do to get their eyes open. Friends, people need to know this. They need to know that they have a creator God. And that that because he is the creator, he gets to make the rules, right? This makes sense because he knows what's best for his creation. He's created us. He knows what's best for us. He gets to make the rules. Psalm 24 and verse 1. uh, Tim uh, read it earlier. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. It's all his. It's all belonging to him. We belong to him. He created us. We are his. 
He makes the rules. And along with being our creator, God is also perfectly holy and righteous. And therefore, one of his rules is that he, he requires perfect obedience from us. In Leviticus 19 and verse 2, it says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's reiterated in the New Testament as well. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in how many points? One point, he is what? Guilty of all. One little teeny tiny eensy weensy bitsy sin will send you to the fiery hell. Of course, this presents a huge problem because who among us can do this? Who among us can be 100% holy, righteous, and practice perfect obedience? I don't know, maybe those folks out in Santa Clarita think they can, you know? But back here in good old beautiful downtown Burbank, there is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And with this sin comes what? Penalty. Penalty. For the wages of sin is death. And of course, they're in that Romans 6.23, not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God for all eternity Revelation 20 and verse 15 tells us, and if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire. Matthew 25, 46 tells us that this is an eternal punishment. There's no such thing in the Bible here as annihilationism. That, that we get to this point and we just die and then we just cease to exist. We have no soul. Our soul ceases to exist. That is not what the scripture teaches us. Or that there's one moment of punishment, but punishment is eternal. And lest you think there might be something that you can do and try and save yourself from these consequences, Paul tells us quite clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Because God knows that if we could do anything to help ourselves, to save ourselves, guess what? We would boast. We would boast. We'd give ourselves the big old pat on the back. Oh, man, I'm so good. I saved myself. I don't need God. I don't need him. This is the bad news of side A of the gospel album. The flip side. The flip side, though, is the tremendous news. Tremendous news. That God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. And who is this son of God? It is, of course, Jesus, the God Man, 100% God, as he said in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. And we know that what he meant by that, that he meant that they were one and the same because what the, the people, the Jews do at that point, they picked up stones to stone him because he was equating himself to be God. He is the God man, 100% God, but also 100% man, as we read in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, oh, praise God, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, yet without sin. So he is tempted because he is 100% man but without sin, again, because he is 100% God. And that's the tremendous truth, friends, here that we see from, from this text is that Jesus lived the perfect life that we fail so miserably in. And because of this, he becomes that perfect sacrifice that we need, dying for our sins on the cross of Calvary. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But thankfully, friends, the work of Jesus doesn't end there. Because what good would a dead Savior be to us? He would be, it would be of no good. 
So Paul continues 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ triumphed over the grave. He triumphs over death. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. And this is the gospel, loved ones. This is the good news that that Paul would use to open people's eyes to the truth that you and I need to use to open people's eyes to the truth, the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save wayward sinners like, like us. And in case you're out there thinking, well, it all sounds pretty simple. It really is. It really is. But is there anything I have to do? You know, I mean... Uh, Yeah, not so much something you have to do, but there is a response required of you when you hear these truths. You, 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 You naturally would be brought to a response. You've heard these truths. Now, what will you do? With these truths and the proper response, the response that that we would hope and pray for any who would hear this gospel message is that they would repent of their sins and that they would believe in Jesus and what he accomplished for them on their behalf. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said it like this, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. That's a great understanding of repentance right there. Return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. While preaching in Athens, Paul exhorted the crowd in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repent. And here, repent simply, it means to change course, to change direction, right? You're, 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 you're dead in your sin, you're moving in this direction of sin, and it is to Make this 180 and go the other direction towards God. Towards His Son. And again, it's all done by faith. It's done by believing. It's done by trusting. Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 tell us that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Notice he doesn't stop there though with the mere confession, right? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Yes, I mentioned this at Dave Fogg's funeral. It is, it, is, it is a faith that leads us to action, to doing something, right? Friends, maybe there is someone here today who has never authentically truthfully trusted Jesus as their Savior. And I'm not talking about any visitors we might have today. Maybe it's you sitting there in the pew and maybe you've, maybe you've been coming to Calvary for a year or maybe two or five or 10 or 15 or 20. I, I don't know. And you have never truly placed your faith in the saving work of Christ on the cross. And if that's you, I just would ask you this this question, friend. Will you today repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus? Will you repent and believe and, and, and enjoy the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that he promises for you? Or will you willfully remain under his judgment and wrath and one day suffer the consequences of hell and the lake of fire? Let's return to our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One more thing that should be said before we get to our second point. Is that here in verses 4 to 5, when Paul refers to people as being in 
darkness or of the night and being in light or of the day, he's using these descriptions to show that which is the dominant influence in somebody's life. He's, he's speaking here of what controls them, what they knowingly, willingly allow to control them. And for those of the darkness and night, namely, it's their sin and the God of this world who holds them captive to that sin, Satan. And while those of the light and day, of course, are controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God who lives and abides inside of them. Now, now, mind you, I am not saying that Satan indwells all unbelievers. He could indwell an unbeliever. He does indwell some unbelievers, but he is a primary influencer along with the world and along with our own wicked hearts. And also, I'm, I'm not saying that believers with the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in them also don't still sin we do for there is an ongoing struggle now in our our fleshly sin cursed bodies and minds but of course we have this new creature in us made in the image or we have become this new creature in Christ I should say made in the image of Christ with now a renewable mind in addition to this All human beings are held personally responsible for each and every decision they make. Where sin is concerned, we can't blame anyone but ourselves. I got permission to share this from my oldest, Jack. There was this moment, we laugh about it now, and at the time you kind of go, oh man, hold it in, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh as a parent, right? Keep the stern face, keep the parent face. But there was one occasion when son Jack is a toddler, I don't know what he was, two or three, whatever it was, and he takes the crayon on the wall and runs down the whole length of the hallway with the crayon. To which his mother says something like, what do you think you're doing? You know, what, what, what is going on? And he looks at her and deadpans, Satan made me do it. Yeah, that's where you're like, hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. This is a serious moment. Do not crack. (laughs) Uh, No, son, Satan might have tempted you, but you did that all on your own. You are responsible. One last thing we have to consider before we move on here is is we have to go back to this thief reference back in verse 4 and understand what Paul is saying there when when he says, but you, brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. And and this is where it can get a little tricky because Paul again uses this word day, but now it has a different meaning than, than how he has previously used it because now he's referring to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And, and you say, well, how do we know that? Well, how do we know how to differentiate something like this in the scripture? Because blank is king. What goes in that blank? Context is king. And that's right. Context tells us it can't be day as in God's kingdom or believers living in light of God's kingdom because we're never told that God's kingdom is is going to overtake us like a a thief. Rather, the near context of verse 2 tells us that the day of the Lord, God's judgment and wrath will come just like a thief. In the night, and of course, because of what Paul has shared back in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, we know that believers will not be overtaken at all by the day of the Lord's judgment and wrath, but will instead be rescued from it, removed from it completely. And of course, the opposite is also true that those in darkness will be overtaken by the day of the Lord's judgment and wrath with no possibility of escape. Now, this brings us to our second and last point this morning. The deeds of darkness versus the deeds of light. Deeds of darkness versus light. Now, remember, part of what Paul is trying to do through all of this is, is again, show the Thessalonian believers how it is that they can know for certain that they haven't missed the rapture. 
They're not currently in the day of the Lord because they recognize that they are not of darkness and night. Rather, they are of light and day. In addition, he also tells them that they should what they should and shouldn't be doing until this day comes. What they should and shouldn't be doing. Look at verse 6 again. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So let's just consider first the deeds of darkness. The deeds of darkness, those living in darkness sleep and they get drunk. And here's another one of those cases where we have to consider the context because up till now, sleep has meant what in First Thessalonians? Death, exactly. Oh, good. You're listening, you're tracking. That's awesome. We saw this three times back in, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. In addition, sleep as death is a popular euphemism that Paul uses in, in other parts of his writings as well. So, so then you go, okay, well, what's he referring to here? Maybe he's referring to literal sleep, like, you know, that kind of sleep. And, and except, well, literal sleep really isn't a, a negative thing. It's not something to avoid. It's rather something that God created us to have to do, right? Uh, to sleep, but it, it's not something to avoid, as Paul is suggesting here. So Paul must be using it in another way. And when you contrast it with what he says about being spiritually alert and sober, we understand that he is referring to those who are spiritually asleep. Spiritually asleep. This means they are not caring about any possible calamity to come. Remember in verse 3, they are the ones who are crying out, Oh, peace and safety. Oh, yes, wonderful. Nothing bad is going to happen. It's all daisies and flowers and all is well. And hey, we can relax and eat and drink and be merry, everybody. But in reality, they aren't concerned because they can't imagine even any impending kind of doom or destruction. These are people who are living autonomous lives. They answer to no one. They do things completely on their own terms. They are indifferent, unconcerned, and careless in regard to sin or God's judgment and wrath that that would come upon them because of that sin. They are like the head of the house in Matthew 24 and verse 43, who because of his own laziness allowed his house to be broken into. In fact, he was probably off Getting drunk when the thief broke in. Drunkenness, that's their second deed of darkness. That they get drunk. In other words, they do not think clearly. They are not acting rationally. They are not of sound mind or self-controlled. And again, they do so at night. Referring to a world that has no regard for anything pertaining to godliness. And night also is that picture of, well, we can do things and get away with things at night. And this harkens back to Jesus' parable in Luke 12, verses 45 to 46, contrasting a faithful and sensible steward with the one that we find here in, in, in this parable, quote, but if that slave says in his heart, oh, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat, drink, and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Friends, if sleep is maybe about spiritual indifference, then getting drunk is just about active sin. But both are indicative here of an unbeliever under God's judgment. Now, the opposite of sleep and drunkenness are the deeds of light, which we see in verse 6 as, as being alert and sober. Alert is uh, Gregoreo. It's where we get Gregory from, the name Gregory, which means watchful, cautious, to give strict attention to, to, to take heed. And sober is, of course, the opposite of being drunk, which is to be self-controlled, clear-headed, free from outside influences, having proper priorities 
being well balanced. Earlier in Luke 12, verse 42, at the beginning of that parable I just read from, it says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Oh, truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. There's blessing there, isn't there? Now, back in our text in verse 8, contrasting those who are asleep and drunk, Paul says, but since we are of the day, we, we are of God and his kingdom, his righteousness and his truth, right? Since we are of the day, let us be sober. Let us be watchful and alert keeping our our eyes wide open for that which is to come. Because here's the thing, friends. Even though we've established that those living in the darkness and night are unbelievers, any of us could fall into these sins of being asleep or or drunkenness. Anyone can fall into these sins of, of spiritual lethargy and, 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 and not being self-controlled or, frankly, any other sin that would cause us to not stay focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, that would not keep us focused on what is to come. Friends, we should want to be found faithful when He returns. When Jesus comes back for us, we... We should want to have heavenly, eternal rewards to look forward to. We should want to hear him say to us, Well done, good and faithful slave. Oh, enter into the joy of your master. Right? We, we should desire these things. That should be motivation Enough, along with just our flat-out love for the Lord. Well, thankfully, Paul then gives his readers kind of what I call some how-tos here. Some how-tos for staying alert and sober. He doesn't just tell us to do it, but he kind of gives us some other tools in our toolbox, if you will, to put into practice. Look back at verse 8. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And of course, this should bring our minds to Ephesians 6, right? In that classic armor of God section where all of us are told to don the armor of God each and every day. So that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil so that we could be able to resist in the evil day. In Ephesians 6, 14, it's actually the breastplate of righteousness while faith is the shield. Uh, Love isn't actually mentioned there in the armor of God of Ephesians 6. But the helmet is the same helmet of salvation. It's just Paul adds in our passage the hope of salvation. And and please don't, don't let yourself get all a flutter because there's some differences here, okay? It's all right. Paul, as an apostle, Paul is a messenger of the Lord with direct revelation. He can do that if he wants to, okay? He can change up the armor pieces. He can. His point is that you have armor. You have these things at your disposal to help yourself, to defend yourself against being spiritually lazy. To help yourself uh, against being, being drunk or, or losing sight of the upcoming day of the Lord and Christ's return. And again, these, these tools are faith, love, and the hope of salvation. And of course, faith, love, and hope is this, this classic triad that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, right? But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So just for a couple of minutes here, how is it that faith can help you? How is it that faith can help you to stay alert and be Sober. Well, think about what it is that you have faith in or what you might need faith for in order to stay alert and sober. How about the promises of God? How about having faith in the promises of God? That God has promised that you are not destined for his judgment 
and his wrath, but that he will indeed rescue you from that time. He will bring you to himself and into his heavenly kingdom. And we are also reminded of his promise to bring about his, his judgment upon this sin-cursed earth and those who refuse to come out of their darkness and into the light of his Son. And, and friends, we have faith because of the promises God has already fulfilled, such as the first advent of his Son, Jesus, and all the, the, the fulfilled prophecies that went with that, that we can go, oh, oh my word, yeah, he made that happen and that happened and that happened and that happened and that There is no reason for us not to continue with that faith on into the future promises of God. And we have faith because of what we've seen God do in our lives. First of which to save us and change us from the inside out. But then I know all of you as believers have stories of how you exhibited faith and God got you through it. Just an incredibly difficult time or a trial and then you go, oh. You, you get through to the other side and you praise him and your faith is now strengthened and, and it's ready to go for the next time. Because of these, there's no reason that we should doubt any of God's promises or plans for the future. And, and what about love? How can love help us to stay alert and sober? I would have you consider your love for God because, of course, again, first and foremost, what he has done in your life to save you, not just to save you, but to sanctify you, to to continually uh, always be making you into the image of his son and to give you grace upon grace and 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 tender mercies, which are new every morning. When you woke up this morning, guess what? There were new mercies for you. And tomorrow there will be more new mercies. You could never use up all the mercies that you might need of God in, in the course of a day, week, month, year, whatever. They're always new because he is a faithful God. Jesus also tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So cultivating a deep An abiding love for God and his son, friends, will only cause you to want to obey him all the more. Therefore, that desire for even sleep or spiritual lethargy or drunkenness, let's just say sin, that desire just will start to be weakened. It will naturally become weakened as your desire for righteousness takes over. And if you're loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as the greatest commandment tells us, truly, there's not much more room left for sin. If we are truly living that way and and loving God in that way. And then lastly, and maybe the greatest tool of defense here, is your hope of salvation. And of course, hope in the Bible is, is not hope like, oh, I hope I win the lottery. No, it's a promise. It's God's promise. You're 100% guaranteed rock solid hope promise of salvation. And this is what you and I have to look forward to each and every day of our lives. That never leaves us. It's always there. And friends, those who live in the light of day, think about this. For you, Christian, the worst that you will ever experience will be in this life. It will be in this life. But for those who live in darkness and of the night, the best that they will ever have will be in this life. Think about that. And that is because, again, friends, we always, always have our salvation to look forward to. An eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in His heavenly kingdom of light. So friends, again, remember, how many categories of people? Two. Two. Which are you in? Are you in the darkness and of the night? Or are you in the light and of the day? Ask yourself, am I an unbeliever Living in the darkness of night with God's judgment and wrath bearing down upon me. And if the answer is yes, 
I pray that today, today would be the day of your salvation. Oh, please, please repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the good news. Repent of your sins. Put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ. Know that you are forgiven of your sins. You have an eternal life then to look forward to. You have then the Holy Spirit who comes to live and dwell in you. Don't leave here without having given your life to Christ. And if you are a believer, you are a son or daughter of light and of the day. Are you living an alert and sober life? Are you anticipating, friends, Christ's return? Or are you a son or daughter of light and day living in the sin of sleep and drunkenness? And if you are, again, you need to repent. Seek God's forgiveness and come back into the light. And if you are a believing son or daughter of light and of the day, just ask yourself, have I put on the protective armor of faith, love, and the hope of salvation so that I can be alert and sober Are you, friends, living in the promises of God? Are you loving Him to the point of hating your sin? Are you living in light of eternity and that great hope of promise of your salvation fully realized? Why don't you go ahead and stand with me as I give you a a sort of benediction again for our passage this morning. This comes from 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, oh, one of my favorite passages, I was reading this passage with a, with a sister just yesterday, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, we... I pray, Father, I pray that this morning, God, we would do some soul searching in ourselves. And maybe there is somebody out here that, like I said, is not even a a visitor who might be an unbeliever that has found their way to Calvary. Maybe it's, it's somebody that's been out here for days, weeks, months, or years, but Father has just yet to give up their selfishness and they're wanting to control their lives and their own autonomy to to indeed confess their sin to you and to to acknowledge that Christ is the savior who loves them who died for their sin who conquered death who conquered the grave so that they could be forgiven and they too could have eternal life they wouldn't leave these doors this morning before they have repented and put their faith in you and your son And Father, for us who are believers, may we examine our hearts and and see if there be any sin in us that keeps us asleep or drunk. That, Father, for those of us who are believers, that we would be putting into practice faith, love, and the hope of salvation so that we could stay alert and be sober, God. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus's beautiful, glorious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.